Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church today. If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to Micah chapter 6. I'm going to be reading from verse 9 through to verse 7. As you would have been noticing over the last couple of weeks as we've been making our way through the book of Micah, it alternates between judgment and salvation, and then back to judgment and then back to salvation again. Um, The book of Micah is not just one sermon, um, but really the culmination or the summary of a lifetime of sermons. Um, And what we're going to be seeing today is some, like we have been seeing, is some very dark passages, uh, like that dark black velvet cloth that a jeweller might put in front of you before they put the diamond ring so that you can see the contrast. So too we have passages like that before us today. One of the big themes that we're going to be looking at today is that of God's judgment. Um, Hence, the New Testament Bible reading, and if you're a regular here with us, you'll you'll hopefully see um, that consistent pattern of old and new, because one is a foreshadowing of the other. In fact, it's all God's word and God's word to us. Um, One of the most terrifying, I think, passages in the New Testament is, is the one that we read from, Uh, in Luke chapter 16. Uh, Significantly, can I just say by word of introduction as before we look at God's word in my car, uh, Martin Luther argued that it wasn't a parable. Uh, It didn't, uh, for number one, say it was a parable of Jesus, but normally in a parable of Jesus, Jesus never mentions people's name. And in that particular incident, it involved a particular man named Lazarus a man that was ultimately um, saved by God, whereas the rich man was judged by God in horrifying circumstances and detail. Um, And remember the, the, the rich man's request, that if someone from the dead could come and warn his family of the judgment to come, then they would believe. And significantly, there is somebody that Jesus rose from the dead called Lazarus. And still God's, or the people of Jesus' day, didn't believe. But as we read before, there is one greater, isn't there? And there is Jesus himself who's come back from the dead. So with that word of introduction, we're going to look at today at Micah chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 9 through to chapter 7, verse 7. And this is God's word. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city. And to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent. Her people are liars. And their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, 
but save nothing. Because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. And you have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman has come. The day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Do not trust a neighbour. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonours his father. A daughter raises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what an ominous word that is. When we think of how holy and righteous you are, that you alone dwell in unapproachable light. No one could stand before your holy presence on their own and survive. For you are holy and we are not. And yet, Lord, because of your great mercy, because of your great compassion and grace, you came in your son to redeem us to take upon ourself, on yourself the judgment which we deserved. Lord, we pray that you would do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit now, that you would take these weak words of mine and use them, Lord, that we might hear your voice to us. 
So guide and direct my words, Lord, that your name would be glorified and we would be edified. Lord, we commit this time into your hands now. We ask for your blessing. We pray it confidently, Paul. We pray it in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. To many people's surprises, it's actually speeches that have done more to change the world and the course of its history than actions. It's speeches that have done more to change the world than actions. In short, it's words rather than deeds because it's actually words which inspire deeds to take place. I know that's a big claim to make, but it's true. And I have a book on my shelf that catalogues most of them, most of the famous speeches in the world that changed the history of the world. For instance, there's Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream, where he outlined his vision, especially in America, for civil rights. Uh, that was the one where King memorably said, um, if you're not familiar with it, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. Great and inspiring stuff. Well, what about Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address? You don't have to be an American to appreciate how influential those set of words were shaping the entire identity of a nation. Without doubt, the most famous and influential speech of them all, I think, and I think many of you would agree, is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It was first spoken by Jesus, incredibly when you think about it, almost 2,000 years ago, and yet it continues to shape the lives of millions of people around the globe this very day. And it was a speech. Another lesser known example, though, is a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, preached all the way back in 1741 in North America. It had the ominous title. Uh, I've never been able to sort of uh, go this far myself, but maybe one day. His title was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Nearly all historians acknowledge that it was the catalyst for what is known as the Great Awakening in North America, where America went from really spiritual lethargy to amazing revival. And it started with that sermon. It was so significant, the Great Revival, the Great Awakening, that it completely reshaped and reformed America. As you would have already picked up on from the title, it was all about God's wrath and God's judgment. And at one point, Edwards memorably describes the perilous condition of human sinners um, which we have before a holy and just God. He says... It is like we are being held over the fiery pit of hell with only a spider web that might cushion our fall, that might prevent us from incurring the full wrath of God. 
Apparently, when Edwards delivered this speech, he had really no hand gestures, no eye contact. He looked at the basically a clock at the back of the wall and just really read what he was going to say. But people were so convicted. It was such a movement of the Holy Spirit that people were weeping out of conviction of their sin. Now, I don't know how something like that would go down today. I think most people, if they heard a sermon like that, especially out in the world today, would just scoff and mock. But being confronted with the doctrine of God or the doctrine of the judgment of God is something that everyone desperately needs. And can I say as a preacher, I think really good that we preach through the Bible. Because to be honest with you, by myself, if it was just my own picking and choosing, I don't think I would have chosen this passage today. I'll never forget uh, a sermon by a preacher called Ian Powell. No relation to myself. He preached a sermon uh, many years ago on the incident involving Lazarus and the rich man, which we read from earlier. It had a really big impression upon me, not just because of the content of what he said, but also of the clarity of his central argument. You see, like most preachers, he had three main points. But he made it really easy to remember because he said that it could be summarised by the acronym RTA, uh, which in New South Wales at the time uh, was the Roads and Traffic Authority. I'm told you had the equivalent organisation with some kind of similar title here. Although, just like here in Tassie, it's now referred to in New South Wales as the RMS, the Roads and Maritime Services, which I think is a significant change in and of itself because we've gone from having in our community, in our society, um, an organisation as an authority which we need to submit to and obey to a service where we are the kings and queens where we come in and you're there to serve me. That's a massive change in our society. And I think it really summarises the thinking of our day, especially when it comes to understanding the role of government. It's an awful Australian trait, I think, but we love to knock the the tall poppy syndrome. I think we have this down to a cultural art, especially for politicians. But brothers and sisters, let me be clear, it's sin. It's sin. Especially when God says to honour the king. And it's written at a time when Nero was emperor. We have no excuse. You see, in the past, it was an authority that stood over us and kept us accountable. But these days, it's a service that meets our needs. And so why would you speak about judgment? I sit in judgment on you. You're there to serve me. The change in wording is significant for it highlights why people find any talk about God's authority to judge so objectionable and so offensive because we just simply don't believe it. Yako asks us at the start of the service, God is holy, God is loving, God is just. Significantly, it didn't come to mind, did it, that we would say God is judge. I'm going to stick with the RTA approach, though, today because I think that what Ian Powell said all those years ago was memorable, it was true, and it was right. 
The Bible says that the Lord has the authority to judge and as such one day we will all have to give an account. We will all have to give an account. One of the most shocking things I've ever seen was a man who had a tattoo on his shin and it was an upside down cross and it had the words, I will never kneel. Because he understood what God's word says in Philippians that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He may have on his shin, I will never kneel. The Lord Jesus says, yes, you will. You see, God's judgment is real. It is terrible. And finally, it is also, thankfully, avoidable. Now, as you would have noticed, the section from Micah 6 to 7 that we're going to be covering today is almost nearly completely negative. Uh, all except verse 7 of chapter 7, which means that once again we're going to appreciate the preciousness of God's salvation. You first of all really have to slow down and, ex- and appreciate the seriousness of sin. It's like the old analogy that I've been using of, you know, the diamond ring against the black velvet cloth. You need, if you want to know how gracious and how merciful and how loving God is, how precious his salvation is, you first of all really have to see how black we are. The first point then is that God's judgment is real. There's no way of escaping that particular truth, no matter how uncomfortable it might make us feel. Uh, If you have your Bibles there, have a look again at what Micah says in verses 11 to 13. Because you see, It's precisely because God is loving and that God is righteous, but but most of all that God is just, that sin has to be punished. If God doesn't punish sin, he is not loving. He is not holy. He is not good. He has to respond in judgment because to do anything else would not be in keeping with his character. Verse 11, shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. Do you feel the weight of what Jonathan Edwards was talking about when he talked about the judgment of God? To come and be guilty before a holy God is a fearful thing, a terrifying thing. Because he says, I will destroy you. Do you feel the weight of that? One of the first people I met when I came to Cornerstone was Baven, Ben Runan. I'll never forget um, talking to him after church and asking him, so babe, what do you do for a job? And for those of you who don't know, he sells and services weighing machines for Woolworths and places like that, businesses. Baven basically goes around making sure that the scales are accurate 
because over a period of time, even with electronic scales, they start to lose their precision. Uh, now, I was immediately intrigued. I thought, you've got the most biblical job in the whole of the church. And he's like, really? I've never thought of it like that. I said, so what does, what does, um, so does the work, you know, when you're fixing the scales, does that work in the customer's advantage or does that work, you know, in the store's advantage? I asked him. Oh, it always, he says it's always in the store's interest to have the scales serviced. Because the scales give, basically over time, more product away to the consumer. And so they're really very eager to have them serviced so that they don't get ripped off. That's really helpful to know. <laughs> I don't know why. I find that kind of comforting. <laughs> what isn't funny, though, is when people intentionally rip you off. Have you ever had that happen to you? Oh, it's terrible. When they deliberately fiddle with the weights or the scales or the car that they're selling you or the boat... And you end up receiving a bum deal. Ah. Oh. That's precisely what the Israelites were doing at the time of Micah. They were ripping each other off. They cared so little for each other that they, they wouldn't be honest or fair. What should God do when things like that are uncovered, especially amongst his people? What should he do? Should he just brush it under the carpet? Well, you know, God's loving. God's gracious. God's merciful. Let's not worry about that. Should he just ignore what happens and, you know, turn a blind eye to injustice? What would you want him to do for you? If he did those things, it would be, I think, even a greater act of wrongdoing, wouldn't it? It's like coming before a judge, presenting your case, showing that you were in the right and somebody that had wronged you, and the judge goes, oh, look, let it go. Doing what is just means that sin must not go unpunished. Brothers and sisters, a God who thinks and acts like that is a God who is not truly holy and righteous. He's a God who is not truly just and not truly loving and not truly good. And so the first thing we need to appreciate is that God's judgment is real and that we should thank him and praise him for it. The second thing we learn from this passage uh, in Micah is that God's judgment is terrible. I really should change that to terrifying. We have already started to see what this will mean in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6. If you take a look, you'll see that that's where he says, you will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. And you see how God, in his judgment, takes away the pleasure and satisfaction that would normally come about through hard work, that would normally be a sign of his blessing. 
There's a verse in Ecclesiastes which says, When God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and to be happy in his work, this is the gift of God. If you're content, if you're finding joy in the things that God has given you, whether it be housing, whether it be cars, whether it be money in the bank, and you can enjoy them, the fact that you don't just have them, but you can enjoy them, is God's gift to you. But so many people have them and are empty, and God's word says that is his judgment. Because they're trusting in the wrong thing. What is the alternative to all that though? It's to not be content, to not be satisfied, to not be able to enjoy what you've been given and that's what makes God's judgment so terrible. Remember how the Apostle Paul describes the wrath of God in the book of Romans which we looked at last week. In response to our idolatrous rebellion, what does he do? He does the most terrifying thing of all and he says, okay, do what you like. He hands us over. That's terrifying. To be handed over to do whatever your sinful heart wants to do, you never want to go there. To have God leave you alone and to not constrain you from sin is terrifying because you do not know what you are capable of. When I was at Bible college, one of our lecturers, one of these older ministers said to us all something I'll never forget. He said, gentlemen, remember, anyone in your congregation is capable of anything, including you. And it's true. The judgment of God is when he withdraws and doesn't intervene to try to stop us. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 1. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. What's the result? They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And as if all of that was not bad enough, the Apostle Paul says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. You see, morality and righteousness is never established by democratic vote, but by God's law. It doesn't matter what the majority of people think. It matters what is true. And that's exactly what has happened to and was going on with the people of Micah's day. They had become so rebellious in their rejection of him that God got to a certain point where he handed them over to their sin. He said, all right, you do what you want to do. And see how that goes. That's why Micah can say of them in verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, 
the most upright, uh, worse than a thorn hedge, they have become the products of sin. They have become weeds, unfruitful vines. And it all makes you realize that God's judgment is real. And God's judgment is not just in the future of what will happen at the end of days, but it's now. Remember, as Paul says in Romans 1, now is the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. You don't have to wait. You can see it now as God takes away his holy restraint and he gives us over to the desires of our heart. That is the judgment of God. The alternative, can I just say, friends, you might say, well, well, what is it? It's that if you in any way feel the Holy Spirit convicting you or restraining you from sin, that is his grace to you. God's judgment is terrible. Then thirdly and finally, God's judgment is also avoidable. Here's the diamond. All that black cloth, it's real. It's terrible. But as my son was saying to me in the car this morning, it's not, well, what is the word? Evitable. No, evitable. It's avoidable. Just take another look at what the prophet Micah says in verse 7 because it's the only verse in this entire section that gives us any sense of hope. See, he says this, But as for me, I will... I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. Now, this is a pretty huge thing to say, isn't it? Especially if you see in the light of everything that we have just read. Because up until this point, it has just been one long catalogue of sin and judgment. And there seems to be no way of escape, no glimmer of redemption God is going to come, he's going to judge his people, and there's going to be absolutely nothing they can do about it because they deserve it. And yet, despite all of this, Micah can look confidently to the Lord and he can refer to him as his saviour and not simply as his judge. In 1950, oh, sorry, in 1566, the reign of Queen Mary in Scotland was in the ascendancy. If you don't know about Queen Mary, her famous name was Bloody Mary because she killed so many Protestants. John Knox, the famous Scottish reformer, had to leave Edinburgh uh, for the West to escape the persecution. Knox prayed this prayer at the time. It's been written down. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and put an end at thy good pleasure to this miserable life for justice and truth are not to be found among the children of men. Knox was in despair. Because humanly speaking, everything looked lost. We complain about persecution today in Australia. We know nothing of persecution. You only have to look back to our Presbyterian forebears. They knew what it was to suffer for the gospel. Thankfully, though, the Lord didn't answer Knox's prayer in the way I think he wanted it. 
About a year later, Mary was forced to abdicate her throne and the Reformation took hold in Scotland. So much so that the nation of Scotland made a covenant corporately with God. You see, while God's judgment is real and while God's judgment is absolutely terrible, at one and the same time, God's judgment is completely avoidable. It's evitable. It's a true word. Evitable. It's not inevitable. It's evitable. If we would simply turn to him. This is something that I think the Lord has really taught me again over the past week. Because this is uh, not just something that we need to hear when we are saved. It's something that we need to hear as saved Christian people. I mean, we all go through difficult times, don't we? I reckon there's at least least two times in every week where I think all is lost. (laughs) Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's with our health. Or concerns about our future or maybe about the geopolitical state of the world. But as we saw last week, we never have to fear, because whatever form of Assyria comes our way, the Lord Jesus Christ is King. Amen. Amen. We have trials in our relationships, and sometimes they can be so painful that we can feel like giving up. It's like everything around us is only darkness. Where we say with the psalmist, your wrath has swept over me, your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken away my companions and my loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Have you ever felt like that? Where you've cried out to God and you've said, the darkness is my closest friend. I know I sure have. Whenever we reach one of these really low points, though, it's crucial that we respond just as Micah did. For the Lord has not left us, even though it might feel like he has. Never trust your emotions. They are a great servant, a horrible master. Never trust your emotions. Notice that the prophet Micah did three specific things. First, he watched in hope. That is, he lifted his eyes up off himself and his own situation and he focused his heart on the Lord. That's the answer. He didn't give up. And that's paramount because no matter how dark things may seem, even now for you, there is always hope. Always. God provides a light at the end of the tunnel. He can destroy 185 Assyrian soldiers in a night. He can take the Scottish queen off her throne and produce a reformation. He can save you. Following on from him watching in hope, the second thing to notice is that he also waited. You see, the Lord doesn't always solve things straight away. An older missionary once said to me, you know, Mark, I think God is nearly always just about late. (laughs) He just has this way of extending you. Where you're going, I've been praying, I've been praying. 
at the very last minute, just when you think the door's shut, in he comes. Instead, in his power and wisdom, he often delays in coming to our aid for lots of different reasons. Like when he brings Lazarus back from the dead. Do you know, if you read John's gospel carefully, Jesus waited three days until he was well and truly dead. Like really, really, really dead. You know, just to make sure. And everybody's complaining, saying, Lord, if you had to come earlier, you could have saved him. You could have healed him. He's dead now. And the Bible tells us that, no, God did this deliberately so that his name might be glorified. You know, friends, sometimes God, often God is most glorified in delay. Don Carson tells the story of a young man uh, studying at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was doing exams and they had a very, very, very strict policy that what you would do at their Bible college, you had to sit the exam on the day at the time it was appointed unless you had a legitimate doctor's certificate to say you were either in sick in bed or close to dying. It was like written there in stone and it was, the college was known for it. Anyway, the last exam for the final year students was on the Friday this, this year. And one of the students was offered one of the most prestigious positions in all of America to go to a church on the other side of the continent. The appointment was for Friday night. And so he thought, I really need to go Friday morning. I can't go. Uh, you know, I, I can't sit the exam. If, uh, and, and otherwise I'll miss the, this prestigious interview pro, uh, selection process. So he said to the registrar, can I please, please, can you somehow just wrangle it so I do it Thursday night? I promise I won't tell anybody what the questions are. And they said, no, I'm sorry, you know our policy. Um, unless, you know, you've got a doctor's certificate and you're dying, you need to sit the exam along with everybody else. That's our policy here. He goes, but you don't understand it. I've, I've set every other exam. I've done ex This is the final exam. I'm about to go into ministry. How could you guys be so pharisaical? What am I going to do? And he goes, well, I guess you'll just have to miss the appointment over on the other coast. And he goes, you're not going to budge? No, we're not going to budge. That's the policy of the school. Carson said, for the next week, all of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School was nattering. Oh, Trinity, they're so pharisaical keeping these rules. You know, yes, you know, we all agreed to keep them, but, you know, ministry is bigger than just exams. The man sat the exam, came into the cafeteria on, uh, on I, I swear to you, on the Friday at lunchtime. They turned on the television and there was a plane crash, his plane, going to the other side of America. If he had have been on that plane, he would have died. Friends, God is glorified in delay. And sometimes we just need to have the integrity to stick with what he says. Maybe it's to break our pride or completely humble us. Maybe it's to show us the folly of our sin and the emptiness of worshipping something else. Maybe it's even the idol of ministry. God is glorified in delight. Making us watch and wait is one of God's choicest ways to grow us into spiritual maturity. 
And can I just say to everybody here who's single, this pertains particularly to you. Wait. Don't sell yourself short. The third and final response is less explicit but rather assumed. For in saying my God will hear me, what it implies is that Micah is praying in faith. He is trusting the Lord in prayer. The prophet Micah must have prayed that prayer so many times over his 50, 60 year ministry. There must have been times when he felt like giving up. Thankfully though, he didn't. As we're going to see, God willing, next week, the book ends with him looking forward to a glorious future. A time when the Lord will pardon sin and forgive transgression once and for all. The diamond at the end of Micah is spectacular. So no matter what you're going through, friends, don't give up. Keep on going, for as one of Micah's contemporaries said, the prophet Isaiah, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for speaking to us through your word this morning. You are the one and only true and living God. And as such, you alone are worthy of worship. Forgive us for turning aside and in our rebellion, worshipping the things you have made. For giving them the honour and devotion and commitment that should really be given to you. You are just in judging us. You are righteous in punishing sin. And you are perfect in all you do. Thank you for sending Jesus, though, to deliver us from your just judgment. We praise you for his life, death and, resur and resurrection and finally ascension into heaven. Thank you for the free gift of not only eternal life, but of your precious and powerful Holy Spirit who has been given to us who believe. Transform and change us into the image of your Son. Lead us in the good works that you would have us each do. And as we watch and wait in hope, be gracious to us that we would know your comfort and strength. Help us to trust you in the darkness so that the honour and the glory and the praise may truly go to you. Thank you for hearing our prayers, for we pray all of these things in and through the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand in response to God's word. And let's not just sing um, to each other, but sing out of our hearts to God the power of the cross. <laughs>